Welcome to the Chasing Thoughts podcast. Chasing Thoughts was founded by strangers, two life coaches who met on TikTok and shared the desire to create a different kind of life coaching podcast. Instead of talking about how to do it right, the Chasing Thoughts podcast explores embracing our true essence to find a deeper sense of purpose and fulfillment. Life coaches Keith and Mindy take a unique approach that transcends popular notions of perpetual happiness and striving relentlessly to become one's ideal self. Listen in as Mindy, Keith, and their guests take a deep dive into their own minds and souls to investigate the beauty of imperfection, challenge their beliefs, and embrace the richness of living a truly authentic life. Hi, my name is Keith, and I'm a strategic interventionist and stoner-spirited life coach. Hi, my name is Mindy, and I am an authenticity empowerment coach. Welcome to Chasing Thoughts. Hi, Keith. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right, cool. I am really excited about today. We agreed to talk about your story and about being a veteran because of the recent Veterans Day. And I'm just really excited. I want you to start at the beginning and give us like the whole recap first, and then we can like dig into parts if that's okay. I want to hear your whole story about like why you started, what it was like, you know, just a little recap. So I understand the story. Um, okay. So I I joined in, I think it was like 94, but I was on this thing called the delay entry program. So, so you, you sign up, but then you have like, I don't know, whatever, six months, you know, before I actually went in and I would just meet with the recruiters almost like on a daily basis, you know, running, working out, trying to, trying to get in shape, which did not work very well because basic training still destroyed me. But, um, I, I don't know why I, to this day, I still don't know why I joined. Mm. Um, I think I just kind of felt lost a little bit not even like kind of realizing it you know um and and wait so how old were you and were you already married or were you a kid what I was uh, I was 18 um okay so you're just a kid yeah um I I think this is even before I met Sandy okay yeah so um yeah because then I met Sandy while while I was in that whole delayed entry thing um and that was, I mean, after like six months, we were talking about getting married. Cause that was one of the thing in, in church, you know, like if you're not married, especially for a girl, if you're not married by the time you're like 25, then you're just like an old spinster, you're worthless, you know? <laughs> um, so like six months we were talking about marriage and stuff and we were going to, we were going to try to elope before I went to basic training, but you know, um, it's, we decided not to force it just to kind of, you know, plan around everything. But um, when I went in, I realized like how sheltered I actually was, you know, like growing up in this church bubble where you net, you can't have um, friends that are outside of the church. You can't date anybody, like nothing. Everything you do is in that little church group. And there were, there were guys there, like um, in fact, the guy um, called our our battle buddies, like in basic. So they start they start with the team building like immediately, and um and my battle buddy, you know, we we're supposed to like watch each other's back and stuff, help each other out. He was there because, um, court gave him 
or a judge gave him um, an old like or a, a, a what do you call it a choice between jail or or the military. He chose the military. Wow. Um, there was another kid there. He was he was such a cool kid. Um, I forget his name, but um, he he was from Washington D.C. and his brother was killed um, in in some gang fighting, and and he decided he needed to get out of that or he's going to end up the same way. So he joined. Wow. Um, and he was such a cool dude too. Like I remember one time he was passed out of sleep and we spent like a half hour take, we had this stuff called 550 cord. It's just like reinforced, like little, like thin rope, but it's so strong. And we, for a half hour would low crawl under his bed, pass it back over, low crawl, pass it back over. He was like mummified and he didn't wake up. So when the drill sergeants came in, and started screaming at everybody he's trying to get up but he is tied down to the bed it was the funniest thing but he was just cracking up so yeah everybody did you you find yourself judgmental coming out of that like christianity and seeing other people or did you find yourself curious and opened by it like how was your first response i I was very curious because i was like people aren't bad right you know um they're, they're, they're good people. Like, um, even the stuff that would be like, you know, considered sinful, like one guy ended up bringing, like sneaking like an old playboy in and he ended up doing like, we ended up doing this thing. It was almost like a kindergarten thing. Like he was the teacher, he was sitting in front of everybody and we were all sitting like, you know, um, legs crossed just in, in a big circle and he would hold up the magazine and he'd be like, like this is Stephanie. Say hi, everybody, and we'd all be like, "Hi," you know. And right. it was just like so, but it wasn't done like out of like perversion or you know, it's just yeah. having fun. Like because yeah. the stress level is so high that just those little bits of fun that you have, like that's what makes everything, you know. And then even even later on, I mean, in in deployments, just with the unit you know, when, when things start sucking really hard, that's when the weirdest type of fun is had. And it's, it's what keeps like the best memories, you, you know, um, man, when we were in Bosnia, <laughs> my, uh, my team leader snuck up, snuck up to our, our, um, where we were on guard in, in this bunker of like sandbags. And it was like, 15 below it was so cold and he brought all this water and he poured it out all over right outside of this little guard shack that we had and as soon as we stepped out both me and my sergeant just went flat on our asses you know but then like in the next day um because during the day we were outside of of like the little sandbag enclosure and um and we he was like break dancing on it and like mm-hmm. just doing stuff like that you know what I love about that? That's my experience as well. Like the, the this rich humor that comes out of these really challenging times. And it's like the tenacity of the human soul, right? It's like when put under pressure, souls actually bloom in this weird way in these vibrant colors. And it's always fascinated me. So I love you sharing that. So you are basic. How long do you do boot camp? Like six weeks? It was uh, eight weeks. And then we went right into, um, they call it AIT. Um, so we call it advanced infantry training. So since I was infantry, most people would do boot camp and then go off to even to a different place 
and do their their job training for they call it an MOS military occupation specialty. Um, that's one of the ways too that you find out people that are like pretending like to be like military. You'd be like, well, what was your in fact when I was working in the prisons? Um, this guy with me and um a buddy of mine who was also a veteran, we were talking, and this guy was like, Yeah, I was in the military too. And we were like, Oh, what was your MOS? And he was like, My what? And so right there, you know, and then when, when we like your job and he's like, uh, weapons and martial arts, <laughs> like, no, that's Hollywood military. That's not, that's not <laughs> real military. Um, but, uh, yeah. So then, then we, so we basically just stayed right there in the same place, like nothing changed. We had the so same drill sergeants. They just upped the stress level. When you talk about training and boot camp. I'm curious, like, obviously you're learning like gun safety and how to shoot and how to crawl and right. Like the technique of war, are they doing any sort of talking about the emotional piece or like how to manage your emotions or thoughts or anything when you're in those situations, or is it all just physical training? It is. So, so there is, there is that, but it's not talking. It's they teach you how to deal with the emotional stuff by stressing you so bad and then mm. almost guiding your reaction till it becomes yeah. like a muscle memory. Interesting. You know? Um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You have to respond under pressure, right? So they put you under pressure and then mold you. It makes sense. Yeah. There was even, um, you know, the movie Black Hawk Down? Mm-hmm. So I read um, a transcript um, of of uh, of that, and um, so I look. I was as I was looking through it, there when the um, the two guys from Delta came down to try to provide aid for the for the one Blackhawk that had had went down and and provide cover for the pilot. Um, there was a, a movie by Steve Martin called The Jerk, and yeah. I remember when the guy was shooting at him, but. Steve Martin thought it was the cans guys. This guy hates cans. Yeah. Stay away from the cans. <laughs> so they started quoting that movie while they were in the helicopter taking fire, hmm. you know, and they're laughing. Yeah. There, there, even, um, there, there was a, a story I read from, I don't know if it was Iraq or Afghanistan, but a guy got shot in the head. His helmet was able to like the Kevlar helmet was able to like redirect. So it like, bounced off ricocheted off but there was like this big gouge in his helmet and he took his helmet off and looked at it and you know you figure like your first instinct would be like oh my god i i i was this close to yeah. that and he just started laughing yeah. you know it's so it's it's that it gets weird it gets yeah, i also wonder if that's part of ptsd like you're delaying this response and then when you're finally safe again 10 years later sitting in your living room you're feeling the emotions of that that time when you didn't feel them because you couldn't feel them. But PTSD is this like gnarly feeling of emotions that were denied for years and years and years. It's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, there, there's a guy, Sebastian Younger. He um, he uh, wrote a book called War about, he, he was in with a group in Afghanistan um, and then it became a movie as well um, called Restrepo. And he uh, he wrote another book called Tribe because they they had some of the worst combat conditions um, in in the entire war. And in the book, he he um, explored the idea of 
PTSD not being necessarily about combat trauma, but also about the losing that that family, that unit. Yeah. You know, yeah. he said, because you're basically living like hunter gatherers did, like we did for for the majority of our existence as human beings. Tribe. Yeah. Of and and for 24 hours a day, you are no no further away than an arm's length from somebody else. And it's, it's like 20 people in like a platoon. So it is this tight group that, I mean, you guys know everything about each other, Mm. you know? So, um, and, and when, when you leave you, that to me is the failing of the military. They, they spend all the time and energy and training you to live in this culture because even basic, it's not just, you know, um, weapons training and, and all that sort of stuff. But it's also how to tell time, you know, how to greet um, officers and and other like higher enlisted men, um, the differences in the rank so that you can you can tell. I mean, at, you always know when somebody was like fresh out of basic because like we we were wearing berets before like everybody was wearing berets, but like uh, airborne always had the maroon berets. And um, anybody that would see the like we had the flash. Right. And it would just be the unit emblem, but it was shiny and stuff. And anytime anybody saw somebody shine, something shiny on our bray, like they're saluting us and I'm a private and I'm like, yeah, I'm not a Lieutenant. I don't have a, but like the shiny bar up on my hat, but just the shine was like, no, we're saluting, you know? Um, so you learn how to live in the military culture. And then when you leave, like, I don't know what they, they call it like now, like, um, like a transitioning plan or something, individual train ITP. Um, but we called it clearing. And as soon as you start clearing, you leave your unit. And that's when that right there, like looking back on it is when I started feeling really strange. Um, How long is that period of clearing? Like when you say you're going to leave or you decide not to re-sign up for more years and then you're back home. Is that like a month or? No, it's a, it's a, it's probably, I would say about six months you start maybe even a little bit longer. Um, um, but then there's, there's steps to it. So like in the beginning, you're still doing stuff, you're still training and all that stuff, but you're, um, but you're going and you're like, we, we would go and get classes on how to write a resume, how to interview, okay. you know, basic stuff like that. Um, when we left, um, that portion of it, like we had our resume with us, you know, and like, now I can go and get a job. And uh, how many, how, what, how old were you at this point when you were in this stage? How long were you in for? Uh, four years. So, okay. Yeah. 22. Yeah. Yeah. So I did, I did basic training. I did airborne school. Then I came home, got married to Sandy. And then the day after our wedding, I flew to Italy, um, to meet up with my unit. Cause they were gearing up for, for Bosnia. Wow. Um, so yeah. And then, and then it was, that was in july and then october sandy flew over to italy to to join me and i think two weeks after she got there we were gone to germany for 45 days so i just dumped her off in a in a country where she didn't couldn't speak the language didn't know anybody and was like all right i'll see you later good luck survive you know for for this time yeah so we went up to germany to train um yeah, and then it was shortly after that because then uh, we left for Bosnia. I think it was December eighteenth, um, 
that we left. So we had Christmas in there and we had like we cut down a little tree. Um and we like put like band like M60 um um bullet bandolier around it, put like hung some grenades off it and stuff, some chem lights and everything. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh it was pretty, it was pretty funny. And then Sandy was completely alone at that at that time. Wow. Yeah. What do you think sort of the gnarliest experience was for you? There there's a few. Like there's one that um I kind of laugh at, like um, where I, I, I it didn't really have, but I like telling people I got hit by a plane. So we had we had a, a new pilot. And when you're dropping jumpers, the plane ends up going a speed that like, if you go any slower, you're going to stall. So it's just above stall speed and it has to angle its nose up. So, and then we just walk out the back door. Um, and he was, he was new and I don't think he ever dropped jumpers before. So he was kind of struggling keeping the plane, um, like, you know, in a nice <laughs> motion. Yeah, it was all over the place. And me and my buddy on, on the other side, he was going out the other door. Um, we both like the plane banked real hard. We fell and I was just about to go out the door when I fell and I fell inside the plane. So I got up and like stumbled, fell again. But now like my front half is outside the plane. My from the waist down is still inside the plane. And so I'm no longer like being carried by the inertia of the plane. And so then the plane just caught up with me hit me and I just started spinning like this. And we have, we, we were static line jumpers. So we're connected with a cord to, to the plane. And when the, when the static, like when the cord goes, it like pulls and, and then your chute comes out. But I was spinning so much that uh, I was so tangled up. Like the, the, the field ambulance started driving towards me thinking like, I, this is going to hurt. You know, and they teach you like how to deal with, with that. So, but like, I mean, I was so tangled. So I'm like pulling the risers away and you're supposed to bicycle your feet. And I'm, I'm like running as fast as I can in the air and I'm slowly starting to go. And I'm like, go. Oh. And then all of a sudden I just hear people screaming, like lower your rock, drop your rock. Cause I didn't realize how fast I had fallen. Right. Um, and I looked down the grounds right there. So luckily I lowered my rock, didn't even go like, it's like a, a 15 foot cord at time. Um, cause it's strapped to your legs initially, you know? So if I landed like that, it would just snap my legs and the, the, the rock didn't even completely unfurl and it hit the ground. And then I just smacked into the ground. But I think because I didn't realize it was there, I was so loose that I was, I was fine. Like, I was just like, Oh, all right, that sucked, but we're good. <laughs> That's a crazy story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the the times that I I struggle with were um, the times in Bosnia was seeing the devastation. Um, you know, I, I I don't like the term ethnic cleansing because um, it was a genocide. You know, from just a little bit of of what I've like looked into after the the Nuremberg trials, that's when they kind of came up with this ethnic cleansing because if there is a genocide, then the UN has a responsibility in every every member country. Um, that says signed up with this, like needs to go in and stop the genocide. So then all of a sudden they come up with this term ethnic cleansing. So it's not a genocide. So they don't have to go in and, and do something. But we were the first um, American troops in. And um, 
they they had already had like the airport was secure, but nothing around that was was um, secured, and that was our job to basically go in, secure the area out around from that, and then um, wait for First Armored Division to come from Germany over over there, and then they would take over, and um, and that's like I'm already like having like struggling with it because that that's where like all my beliefs of like, I'm weak, I'm a coward because our deployment was nothing like Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, I've never been in a firefight, never had someone shoot at us or anything like that, but just coming from that sort of sheltered life into the reality of how evil people can be is incredible, you know? And then looking back on it, not that the, I don't want to say the military is evil, but they they prepare you in the same way, you know, like even just the cadence calls that we would, while we were running, were all about dying. Like, you know, for airborne, there's, there's this one, um, um, glory, glory, what a hell of a way to die, you know, and everything's about dying about, or about killing. Um, and, and when I look back, like, I mean, from every war that we've had, we always have like a slang for the enemy. So you have to dehumanize the other the other people. And that's where that evil comes in. When you start looking at other people like they're less than human, where you can do whatever you want to them and it doesn't really matter because they're not fully human or whatever, then it's almost like you give up part of your own humanity. Yeah. You know, and seeing that and seeing the just the belief that no, it's okay. It's right for me to slaughter children, women, you know, old, old, old men for no reason at all. Just, just, uh, just to do it. I remember we were on one patrol and, um, this old woman came out and she was hugging everybody as we walked and I couldn't understand what she was saying, but like, she came up and she, she was just sobbing in, into me. And I just put one arm around. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. I was 19 at the time. You know, I had no idea what to do. And she's looking up at her house and there's a little berm and there's two fresh graves, you know, with the dirt kind of still up. So her, her family, every man um, in her family was just, was murdered just because they were, they yeah. could, you know, um, another woman tried to get us to take her daughter. She wanted to literally have one of us marry her daughter and take her away. And she and could her, live. Yeah. And her daughter was like, I mean, this girl looked like she was like 13, you know, something like, I mean, young. And the thing that got me the most was, and I've, I've practiced this so many times um, where, cause normally I'll get into it and I'll just like, I'll lose it, you know, but we walked up and, and I can't remember if it was the same patrol, if it's all, these are all, everything is just kind of like melded together in my, in my memory um, but there was this factory that had like a overpass over this dirt road we were on and, um, and we stopped for this, our scouts to go off and check. Cause it was like the perfect place for like a sniper. Um, and once they cleared it, we kept going right on the other side of it. There was, um, this stone house, you know, like it looked like something you would see on a calendar, you know, stone house, beautiful field, except it was winter. So everything was barren, but, um, but then you saw like holes in the roof. You saw um, like holes in the window. So like bullet holes and everything. And this little girl walked up to me and she must've been six years old. And we stopped, I don't know why we stopped there. 
Um, but we stopped and, and whenever you like, we stop, you always, you turn outward to, you know, just kind of scan for, for anything. And this girl walked up to me and she just stared at me. She stood about a couple feet away from me, but just stared at me. And her eyes were, you know, when people talk about like that thousand yard stare, like her eyes were just dead. There was nothing there. You know, yeah. um, there was no emotion on her face the horror, the shock that that she must have lived through. And then I started like seeing like, she had beautiful blonde hair, but it was all tangled and dirty. She had this pink dress on that was like ripped and everything. And she just clung to this little disgusting doll that, that you know, and I just started thinking about her hiding under a bed, you know, or something trying to be safe, you know, while people are just standing at the roadside, putting bullets into the house and just laughing, you know? And it hit me like, you know, 40, 50 years or, or when you become an old person, you know, an old man, you sit and you have a drink with your, with your, your buddies and you tell war stories and you think and you reminisce about that stuff. And, you know, but it's the, the scars that that little girl will carry that those scars will de help develop her life in some way into, into something that's not good. And that, I don't know why, but I, I felt myself go dizzy and I didn't know what was happening to me. Like I, like how I didn't fall, I don't know. And then we, then we just kept going and that was it. And yeah. at the end of that patrol, we had a, um, a reporter that was um, embedded with us and I was just, I took a knee and I was just looking off, like trying to understand, like, I was almost like in the shock myself. Like I, I didn't, I, I didn't know what was going on with me. And he saw something on my face and he started taking pictures. And of course, everybody thought I was like hamming it up for the camera. So I started doing that. I started posing, you know, looking thoughtful and stuff, you know, be like, all right, let me, cause I don't want it to seem Cover like, this up. Yeah. yeah. And when we came home, that was it for me. I, I wanted nothing to do with the military. I just wanted to do my time, get out, go home. I, I never felt safe. Um, never felt, I haven't, I haven't felt connected with my body. Um, you know, when people talk about like being, I don't know, I don't understand what that means to be connected with your body. You know, yeah. like, I feel like I'm here. That's just where I am. That's it. Yeah. Um, And I'm, I'm envious. I'm jealous of, of people that feel that connection, you know, um, and what people don't understand is that there are so many more problems. There is not a place for help. Yeah. You know? um, because I don't think anybody understands how to help this. Yeah. That was going to be my next question is like, those stories are so huge. I can barely sit with them, right? And to imagine going through that and then when you're out and you're struggling, do they try to give you talk therapy? Like how do they try to heal that? What's the method of healing that's currently being used for people who experience these kinds of things? So for for Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan vets, like anybody that comes out, if you were involved um, in those wars, you automatically are enrolled into like the VA, the mental health program and stuff. 
Um, they even have counselors. Think about, like, just pause for a second to think about just that statement. If you're here, you will automatically need mental health treatment. And we know that, and it's set up that way. That's gnarly. They don't, the recruiters aren't telling you that though. Like, Hey, before you sign up, just so oh, you know, dude. you're going to have mental health problems for the rest of your life. And we have that all worked into the package for you. Right? Yeah. Like, when I, when I was insane. a kid, man, like, I remember I, I, when Rocky came out and I was like, I'm going to be a boxer. You know what I mean? Like it just made mm-hmm. you want to like fight like that. You know what I mean? And, and the recruiter, this was even before CDs, just like I don't even know what they called it, but it was like, it looked like a record. It was like that big. It was like this golden disc. And she put it in this massive like CD player thing. And this dude, this airborne ranger, it was like noon out in, I don't know, somewhere out West where it was like kind of desert and stuff. And he comes up out of nowhere from like just some of the shrubs and he's like chiseled, and he's got this weapon and, and we call it combat light. Cause he just had this, um, LBE, which is load bearing equipment on with, with some magazine canteens and his rifle. And he's just looking around and I'm like, that's what I want to do, yeah. you know? And then like half a year later, I have 150 pounds on my back walking in the dead of night. And, and they said, do not step off the road. If like, just imagine anywhere you step off the road, it's landmines and you're going to, you're going to die. Um, and I had, I was a 203 gunner. So I had a vest that had all of these high explosive, uh, rounds for the 203. And I'm thinking if I step on a landmine, I'm going up like the 4th of July. Like it is going to be a show, you know? And I'm like, the recruiters didn't talk about this. Like this was, (laughs) they're, they were talking about college money they were taught like all this stuff. And that's one of the things that messes people up, you know, is they, yes, you do have that. But what they don't tell you is that you're going to be not everybody, but there's a good chance you're going to be so depressed when you leave that you're not going to be able to sit in class or you'll be sitting in class and you'll hear some 18 year old kid talking like i remember i got so angry when i went to school in class um they were talking about guantanamo we had talked about it uh, before like the and and they were like oh they should know better taking those but i'm like you don't fucking get it you know but and and there's been cases like where um i've read like studies where, where people have done studies on veterans like where they've gotten kicked out of school because they were afraid of, of the violence, you know, of, of the vet becoming violent because he was like, you don't, you don't, you think, you know, what it's like to be over there. You don't know shit, you know, growing up in your little small town and stuff. So, you know, and, and there's memes, there's constant memes like that. I, that I see online, like there was one, um, this old man, you know, and it said like, you know, he was the veteran and he said, um, my back hurts so bad when I wake up in the morning. And then underneath him was the, the VA doctor saying, then wake up in the afternoon. Um, but, and it's funny. And and the reason why it's like, it's seriously funny is because that, that in a lot of cases is the level of care you get. So because I, I was not in Iraq or Afghanistan, I did, I was not afforded the same care. I had, I, I had to fight for four 
years for that. And, and it ended up taking my wife calling congressmen, senators, all kinds of people. And then um, the head patient advocate, somehow she found this lady's personal cell phone number online. And the lady was like, I don't know how she did it, but I'm calling you now because she fought for you so much. And that was the only reason why I actually went in to see a doctor, you know, because I kept going to the emergency mental health clinic where I was told like, you know, the first time I went there, I'm like shaking I, again. I don't know what's going on with me. And, and, and she's like, um, the receptionist after she finished her text, you know, then looks up and, and she's like, um, all the doctors are out on lunch right now. So it's going to be a couple hours. So you might want to come back tomorrow. And I'm like, this is the emergency mental emergency mental health clinic. And you're telling me to come back in, um, in another day. It's like, all right, yeah, let me, let me put my, my psychotic break, whatever's going on. Oh, right. let me, let me put that on hold tomorrow. I'll, 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 you know, take that back up, you know? Um, and I even had a, a, a shrink psychiatrist when I said Bosnia and I'm thinking I'm a coward, I'm weak, I'm, I'm nothing because of, because it, it was an easy deployment. She looked at me when I said I was in Bosnia and she said, what was so bad about that? And this is, this is a doctor who's younger than I am, you know, who probably like was born a couple years after that, you know, and I, and I'm, and that's what, and I'm, it was everything in my power. So she finally, she, I got so angry at her. She told me that, that she's going to send me for a PTSD evaluation. She then, I'm assuming, watched me go to my car because like there was just after a storm. So there was like nobody. And I thought it was the perfect time. I'll get right in. You know, as soon as I got to my car, I got a phone call and I didn't recognize the number. So I, I answer it and it was her. And she's like, on second thought, I think it'd be best if you sought treatment elsewhere. So she, the doctor at the VA literally told me that the VA is not my place to, to be for, for help. Wow. Yeah, I think it's worth pausing for a moment to just say that trauma is not linear, right? What's traumatic to one person is not traumatic to another person. And that if anybody, doctor or otherwise, ever tells you that your trauma is undeserving or insignificant or you don't deserve to have it, do not believe it. And if it's your doctor, find someone else, like just to anybody listening. Cause I think this happens all the time that traumas are minimized. And then we pile shame on, on top of shame and we never get healing for our traumas. Cause we think we shouldn't have our traumas. And the truth is it doesn't matter if everybody else thinks your childhood was great or your deployment was easy. If it was traumatic to you, that's the end of the story. <laughs> yeah. You know, and as you were saying that too, is I think we have, we have a tendency to try to minimize our own trauma mm -hmm. and trauma doesn't give a shit what we think about it. <laughs> it so we're going to react that way. And the more we fight against how we're reacting and the more we produce our own shame on that, the worse it's going to get, you know? And, and when you look at people, when you study people like Viktor Frankl, um, who says that they're, 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 trauma has like the nature of gas. Like you put gas in any size container, you can put the smallest amount, you can put tons of it, but the nature of gas is to take up the entire container and trauma is the same way. And then Edith Egger, another Holocaust survivor. said there is no hierarchy 
to trauma. You know, when, when I was going through all my coaching classes and stuff and in the VA um, with all the work, ironically, all the work I did on myself, that once that work was done, then they really were like trying to, trying to help me like, wow, that's incredible. How'd you do that? You know, they set me up at a program, but um, all the, all the people in the program, the patients, it was like this trauma competition mm -hmm. um, where, oh, why are you, why are you depressed? Why did, why did you turn to drill? Whatever. You didn't go through what I went through, you know? Um, so yeah, trauma is definitely misunderstood. Um, I think even by those that are supposed, supposed to be experts in it, yep. you know, in many, many cases, um, yeah, it's just, it's not, it's not good. Yeah. It's not good at all. So after she said, seek treatment elsewhere, did you just go do that? Uh, so I started doing that. Um, and I, I actually met with a doctor who used to work at the VA who started his own and, practice. Let's pause for a second. And at this point, you've been out for like five years and struggling for like, is it that true? Like, is that where we are in your timeline? Like it's years later or is it? Yeah, it's about, it's about 15 years later. Holy cow. So you've been struggling basically your entire adult life, right? Cause you come back. That's the other thing. You're 18. You come back as 22. You're an adult, but you've never even been an adult in the world before. You've only been a child in the world. Right. And so you're coming into this like role that you've never had. And then you're just doing it all from this place of trauma. Like how confusing that would be, even if you came back healthy to figure out how to be an adult. Right. I, so when you said that, it was like a punch in the stomach. I never looked at it like that before, but mm. like as an adult, I have never had peace in my life. Normal life, right? Like yeah. a normal adult life. Cause That's there were, crazy. and I didn't, I didn't get what was wrong with me. Like I would be surrounded by my wife, my kids and and I would have to go and separate, like I would go into my room and just lay down and turn off all the lights. Like, but I, but the emotion that I was feeling, I would say I felt lonely, but I'm surrounded by everybody. And I'm so lonely that I have to go and isolate myself and be alone. You know, like I, I don't get that. I don't understand that. That makes absolutely no sense, you know, but we're dealing with emotions like where you see the all right one of the things that like that bothered me like people always talk about the enemy the enemy's attacking me you know um you know they kind of they kind of like outsource bad in the world to to satan or whoever the the antithesis of their god is right and like people are evil people have a, they have the ability to do amazing good and they have the ability to be demonically evil without any help yeah. you know if there is a satan i'm sure he's like sipping my ties on a beach enjoying the view because he right. doesn't need our help to be assholes yeah like we got that covered you know, we're, and, and that was the thing, like, I believe, and I still struggle with it for a long time, but human beings are parasitic. Mm. We feed off each other. And then when we're done, we just discard each other. Who cares? And even, even the planet 
we just feed off it doesn't matter but i mean that that one's gonna kick us in the ass because we got no other place to go you know um so i think that's also been really hit by what you said earlier is that when we used to live in tribes there was more like i'm a steward for you you're a steward for me we're a steward for this place where we live this natural world and there was this sense of connectedness and stewardship that is completely gone now like in my day-to-day life i never come into contact with that unless i'm you know talking to a friend that's intentionally cultivated that level of stewardship right it's right. just weird yeah you ask any, any anybody that lives in like a tribe like that and even the indigenous people like from here like ask them like what land ownership is. they don't like you don't own the land like we're from the land if anything the land owns us like we're stewards of it you know but we and we have that like kind of backwards but yeah it's even it's even funny to watch with all the work that i've done now how my mind because my mind's all dissected right now like you know uh which to, to me i'm at, at a point now where like i find that just fascinating watching like the the flight fight or flight like kick in and watching parts of my mind shut down you know um yeah it's just fascinating to me at this point um yeah so tell me how did you get here like so fill in the gap so now you find a doctor who used to be va and then did you feel like real healing began no that's when meds began um oh interesting okay so and i was expecting the meds to make me better but and it wasn't you know and but just what wouldn't happen this wasn't I, I felt more numb more dead inside um less emotionally available you know because the 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 bad thing about it is like I wanted the meds to shut down the depression, the anxiety, the the constant hypervigilance. And it did to a point, but it also shut down joy and happiness. And like it blunts emotions. Right. And there was still no talk therapy in combination with the drugs. Nope. Yeah. Because nope. that's was- what I've heard about those types of drugs that I think can be valuable is it's like, okay, we put a damper on it. So it's safe enough to start to go in and explore, right? That they were good in combination with talk therapy and drugs together work well because it helps your brain develop new pathways easier. It lowers your threshold of fear. And like that I get, but I don't think that they're just meant, like, it's not like you take it, you feel great. And then you just take it till you die, (laughs) right? Not how it works. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In fact, that's why, like when, when I had my, um, I had a hip replacement at 34 from just arthritis from jumping. And then my low, I had lower back surgery. Cause again, cause like everything from the waist down is just a train wreck, you know, for me, um, you know, bone wise. Um, geez, I made that really awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, um, but, um, I forgot everything I was saying. Um, I was asking about like, so you started the drugs, the drugs weren't working. And then what happened? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so like, I mean, pain, I loved pain because when I was on painkillers, I finally felt like I'm happy. Mm. You know, Um, so the the chance for me to go into addiction was very, and I, so I'm, I, I luckily, and I mean, I was physically addicted, like after my hip surgery, cause I was on painkillers for a year and a half, you know? And then I think three months after that, like that was it. 
um so this is before the whole opiate crisis went on and everything and um and i there was a week where i didn't sleep um i i if i did sleep i would wake up and i feel so bad because we'd have to change the sheets just from sweat um I, I felt like I was going crazy. Like I remember just rocking back and forth on the couch, like at three in the morning and I would be getting these like electrical flashes through my body. And I would just bite my hand just to like, I don't even know what, like, I just felt like I was going insane, you know? Um, and, and, uh, my, my doctor, my, the, my hip doctor was like, I'm surprised you did that without a program. Um, it, it sucked, you know, but the detox part of it. Yeah. So yeah, so they yeah. started they started um um just antidepressants, anti-anxieties, um, you know, and I didn't I I I would get to the point and, and like my sessions with the doctor were like 15 minutes. Um, how you feeling? Great. Okay. All right, keep taking the meds or let's up them, let's up them. Right. Which um, one of these smile to frowny faces are you? Oh, that one? Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> And, and that even today, that is still my meetings with the, with the shrink at the VA. Like he'll say, how many times were you in the red? You know, the red, like being like out out of control. How many times were you in the yellow? And I'll tell him, he's like, okay, see you later. See you in six months, you know, take these pills. Um, so my wife ended up getting me in, um, and the doctor, I, so I finally went up like at, at my VA to the third floor, you know, that's the mental health floor which is so sad. Cause it's like, I finally made it, you know, I'm finally there. I'm on the, I'm on the mental health floor, you know? And again, I'm thinking, I'm not here. I now I'm going to get some help. I'm going to get some answers. Yep. And one of the issues with the VA is that they don't listen to you. They just read the notes on the monitor from the other doctor. So every doctor that I met with in the emergency mental health clinic over that four year time all said, no, I'm bipolar. Um, and and I'm like, well, I, I don't, I don't, I don't get manic. Like, I, I don't, I don't get this, you know, like, and I started reading like the DSM manual. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, I can, I can see that, but all this stuff, like, so it matches, I matched up with PTSD and I also matched up with like bipolar two or something, you know, um, I'm like, well, how do you choose which one, which, you know, and for the VA, it comes down to, well, if we diagnose you PTSD, now we got to pay. So we're going to diagnose you with bipolar. Um, Now, from what I understand, I only heard this from one person, but they're moving now more towards autism. Um, Since more people are are seeing that they're on the spectrum. So they're they're going to start trying to diagnose people with autism, which of course happened before combat, you know, so cut cut the paychecks. Um, So um, when I first went to that, to that shrink, um, she told me, she didn't listen to me at all. She, and then she said, no, you're bipolar. You just didn't, you just don't know that you are because bipolar comes out right around the time that you're the age where you're, you're joining the military. So you get it kind of confused, but I know. So, and I know you're, you're bipolar. And then, um, then she told me she, um, I just, my problem is I haven't mourned the loss of my innocence. She wanted me to go to a grief counseling group and sit down with people that have just lost family members, children, parents, and say, um, I'm here to mourn my innocence. And I'm like, how fucking disrespectful would that be to people that have just experienced loss? You know, um, 
And I'm like, and my innocence was gone way before that. So <laughs> trust me. And I think how arrogant on behalf of that doctor to tell you what you should be feeling and what you should do. Yes. That is so wrong on so many levels. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, they're the experts. So like in my mind, right. I'm like, am I really just, so it's almost like the psychiatrists at the VA are now gaslighting me. Yes. And I'm like, what, what yeah. is really going on? And, but luckily for me, she also diagnosed Sandy, my wife as being bipolar, thinking she was talking about me. So mm -hmm. she said all those calls that you made. And I told her about all the calls while she was reading her screen, she goes, all those calls that you made, they see that, that that's a sign of, of like um, obsessiveness and that that's a symptom of being bipolar. And I'm like, you just diagnosed my wife as being bipolar. <laughs> and she's like, what? what? And I'm like, so I, being in school at the time, I was like, um, I, I, I'm writing a paper right now um, called when suicide is your savings plan, you know, because, and she got pissed. She was like, I get a mark on my record every time one of my patients commit. And I'm like, you get a mark? Fuck you. <laughs> you, you know, um, then she told me she wanted me to go on Depakote, which is an anti-seizure medication, but it also has some effects like with mood and like stabilizing and all that apparently. But it's so toxic to your system that you, I'd have to get my, my liver enzymes checked every month to make sure my liver wasn't shutting down. To make sure it's not going to kill you? Yes. So, yeah, so the help doesn't kill me. And I'm like, I'm not comfortable with putting like, put something like that in my body. And she's like, that's paranoia. That's another sign of being bipolar. Yeah, I, I think it's worth a pause again to just tell anybody listening, whether it's your physical doctor or your mental health doctor, they are not the expert on you. You are the expert on you and that you interview people and you hire and fire people until you find someone who believes you about your physical symptoms or your mental health symptoms. And that's it. And because I think this happens to a lot of people, both with their physical health and their mental health is they put doctors or therapists on this pedestal and that's, that's not helpful in no. most situations, right? You have to learn to be the expert on you and to advocate for yourself. And that's the only way to get better because just like any other profession, there is good electricians and there's horrible electricians. That's how it is with therapists too. And so you can't just call somebody and tell them your life. They could wound you, right? Like you've got to be diligent about who you hire. And I know you and I as coaches, I always tell people this in their intro sessions. If you connect with me, let's work together. I want to do it. If you don't, please go interview a couple other people. I am not offended. You find your person because I want you to heal and be happy and get this thing that you want yeah. in life. So it's worth a pause as you're telling these horror stories about your doctor to just make sure to reiterate that to all the listeners, because it's an important part of the process of being your best healed self. Yeah, I, I think I think it like it's kind of a part of that healing journey as well. Because so, especially with mental health, like if you can't like any in the military, like I mean, break your leg, all right, you can see that, you know, so you're good, you know. But if you have a mental injury, you can't see it, so it's just glossed over. And 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 in our society, that's what we do as a whole. So yeah. anybody that is dealing with that and their doctors are trying, and and it just doesn't make sense. Like you have the right 
to just tell your doctor because I finally just told this lady I was just like you know what go fuck yourself after she told me the whole thing yeah. like, get a mark I was like just go fuck yourself and I just turned and walked out totally um no appropriate I, response yeah so like I, I I at that point I decided I'm done I gave up you know so don't right. do that go find more doctors um or more or another avenue of help you know yeah. um, but at this and, point, um, you've spent years of suffering, years of trying to get help. And I can totally understand where you're just like, fuck it, right? I was done. Yeah, I, I, I left the VA, went to a package store, got a bottle of uh, vodka and I started drinking. Yeah. Um, and I remember I got a call um, and I was at this pizza, just sitting in a parking lot of a pizza place, drinking in my car at like, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon. I did not care. Um, and it was that, there was the, um, the head patient advocate. Cause my wife, Sandy got pissed when she heard about this. And, um, she was like, please try one more time. And she set me up with his new doctor and he was a good, he, he's the one I still see today. Um, That's he was awesome. You know, he, didn't once look at his monitor, which I'm sure he read all the notes prior to, but didn't once look at the monitor. He listened to me and he said, you don't have bipolar, you have PTSD. Mm. He's like, we're going to get you in with the therapist right away. The therapist was amazing. Uh, Grant, she was an intern. So she actually didn't like all this stuff, all the care was not like, she still cared, you yeah. know, it wasn't just this callous thing. And, um, and still, but still met meds, 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 you know, like still push that. But he actually even told me like, so I didn't realize benzos, the anti-anxiety are one of the most addictive substances on the planet, you know? Um, and he said, and you're, you're taking them daily and it had been like a year and he goes, and they have been linked to early onset dementia. I never heard that. Right. A doctor never, ever told you that. No. And he's like, so I want to start coming down. And he said, because these are very high, these are highly, and I didn't even know they were addictive. I didn't know. Like, I'm just, he's like, take this. Okay. You know, So how, was it hard to get off of them? No, it really was. It was more of a, at that point, um, a mental crutch for me. I don't know. Uh, crutch is a bad word, but like, you know, it was, it was a mental thing. Um, well, I think sometimes when we've had, when our own emotions have hijacked us, right then we are scared of not taking the anti-anxiety or not taking the pill or not taking, cause we're trying to prevent this thing from happening. Like you said, it's yes. a mental addiction, even though I don't actually feel the anxiety right now, I want to make sure, right. And it becomes living in this fear and this constant pushing away of a negative thing that might happen. And that sucks. That's living in fight or flight all the time. Right. It just sucks. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing this lady told me too, was like, cause I, 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 like I would, I would get to school. And so I, I started at, did two years at a community college and then I transferred to a, a state university and I would get to every class an hour early. I was the first one. So the, there was a, like the previous class was still going on and I'm just sitting there right by the door. So as soon as that door opened, I can go in and get one of the back seats, um, back corners, what I would always go for. Um, yeah, it was funny because like after close to the time, like when I was going to graduate, I had done so much research because I, I basically I, I, I told myself the VAs, they don't they don't have a clue what they're doing. Even with a good doctor, I'm not getting better. Um, 
I'm going to figure this thing out myself, you know? And so I was studying anthropology and I decided to look at myself, my brain as its own individual culture, you know, mm. why does it do the things it does, you know, um, all, all this stuff. And, and there was, um, a model and it looks like a little like ramp that doesn't like come down on the other end fully, but it's a rite of passage model. Mm. And so you have this time of separation a time of transition and then a time of reincorporation where you reincorporate back into your culture, but at a higher level of responsibility. Right. And I'm like, this is, this is the military. You separate, you know, you go to basic training where, where all the cultural norms of what you like, of what that you had are completely shot. Now, then you have this transition period where they call it being uh, betwixt and between right. You're, you're not yet this, but you're no longer this, right? So I'm not yet a soldier, but I'm no longer a civilian. And all of the things that 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 go with that, um, everything is the same. There's no hierarchy except the one that controls you all, you know, group punishments, all that stuff. Like, I mean, the only thing that separated me from the next guy was just my name tag. That was it. We were all the same rank. We We all had, everything was exactly the same. And then when you reincorporate, I, you don't reincorporate back into your culture. Mm. You reincorporate into the, so you incorporate into the military culture. It's basically basic training and all that stuff is, is an assimilation process into the military culture. Yeah. But when the you programming, leave, if you will, right. Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, dude. I remember bay, uh, bayonet training. Like you would feel the, the, like the vibrations from everybody screaming at the top of their they because the drill sergeant would have like this megaphone be like um whenever we did like a movement with the bayonet we'd have to scream kill you know and and there's like hundreds of us and we're all doing it at the same time just screaming kill you know and you feel it in your bones like it is wow. it is a it, it is a cool thing you know now that would be interesting research like you know, they've done research on how what you say to oh, a bottle of water affects the crystals of that water, right? And when you take a body and you put it in this environment where you're saying kill and it's resonating into every cell of your body and you can feel that resonance, what's that doing to you on like a physiological, like neurological level? Wow, that's, that's yeah, big. We, we, and that's where we live. We, we, didn't, we didn't care. Like, uh, um, the unit I was in over in Vicenza, Italy, and I think in the eighties, Time Magazine interviewed the Italians that lived around us, and they called us the most in shape alcoholics. Um, because we would just drink, like it was, wow. it was just you know we we generally have a four day weekend, um, you know, because with the infantry, like you 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 train or do call it area beautification where we're picking up everybody's cigarette butts, um, because assholes can't throw them away in the trash, so, um. And then we'd have a four day weekend and it was just straight. You would drink until you passed out and you would wake up the next day and drink and pass, you know, and we, we bar hop down at the train station and then chase prostitutes around and stuff. Cause they wanted nothing to do with like Oz, you know, but we, we thought it was hysterical. Like we, there was nothing, there was no consequences. Yeah. There was no, or sense of consequences or anything, you know? Yeah. Um, and it fit like it fit in the military culture. Right. Because it's that though. bravo wildness and like crazy things are happening everywhere. Right. So it's just all sort of surreal. Yeah. No limits. 
Yeah, we actually had a, a new colonel once um, came in, new battalion commander, and he was in his civvies. And um, this guy like just crossed the street right in front of him. So he honked. And and this dude, he was like an enlisted guy. He was like, I don't know, like a, a, a specialist or something. He turned around and he was like, I'll fuck you up. I don't, you know? And the colonel was like, he got out and he told him who he was. And the guy came to attention and stuff. And he's like, nope, I want my troops ready to go. Um, so he was like more like praising him yeah. like for that level. I mean, there, there was times like in the, in the club, if one of the guys, like in my, my Bravo company got into a fight, you would, somebody would scream out Bravo company, you know, and then you would hear a hundred like seats just slide back. Cause it didn't matter if they caused it, if they were at fault, did not matter. Yeah. We're fighting, you know? Um, and that's what, that's just, yeah, it was, it was that way of life. Yeah. So, and then you wonder when people get back and they're fighting, you know, with their wives or with people in their lives, that's a big surprise. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I heard it. Like, um, you're, you're trained to do that and you have this automatic response that's happening in your body. Of course. Yeah. There, there was a, a guy, I, um, um, a buddy of mine. So it, it was her boyfriend. He was at a um, gas station and his, he was having trouble with his car. So he went in with the clerk and, and the clerk couldn't get it. And the guy behind him was getting um, frustrated. So he just slapped a 20 down on. He was like, I'm filling up whatever that gets me. Right. So not a problem. Right? right. And that guy is frustrated, whatever. Like, all right, he's probably a miserable dude anyway. But it, like that, that instinct took over. He grabbed the dude's 20, crumpled it up, threw it at him. You know, and and it was almost a fight. And he had they have a massive pit bull, and this dog yeah. is scary. Look, it, it's the biggest baby, but the guy stepped forward to him, and that dog, like it'll snap its jaws. I've never heard this before in my life till I heard this dog do it. It was like a crocodile, just like you heard this crunch, this snap, and I'm like, oh my god, dude! And the guy just stopped in his tracks, and he goes, "You want me to set the dog on you?" And he was ready to do that. Because the guy put down a 20 yeah. in, in a frustrated way, yeah. you know, there is no, that was a thing that I found was that, and, and all the research says it, this is a thing that, that kills me. They all quote this one woman named Ann Demare. She's a, a, a public health um, researcher out of the university of San Diego. And she said, basic training, the, the role of basic training is to strip the recruit of their individual identity and to build up the military identity. Right. And when we're going in 18, 19, 20 years old, that is also right around the time that our identity is still malleable, but it's forming. Right. It's just about solid. It's just about set. And then they come in and they smash it and right. they're like, nope, we're going to build it this way. So and, and then when you leave, it's just. Thank you. See ya. Yeah. Here's your I resume. Have, I have a, a question. So with what you just said that really resonated with me, this idea that my natural identity got beaten out of me by life, right? And so my question to you is, do you feel like you lost it completely? Or do you feel like it's buried and you're still finding it? Or do you feel like you found it? Like, how is your retrieval process going to this person who you were at 17, 18, who you were going to become, the man you were going to become, like whatever that soul nature, this is my authenticity. 
is it forever gone? Is it still in you? Like, what's your relationship to that now? That is the best question I think anybody's ever asked me. Um, yeah, I, I don't think we lose anything in life. Yeah. I think everything that happens to us, as bad as it is, and when I say there's a choice, I'm not getting into victim blaming or anything like that, but there is a choice of whether it is going to crush you or you can take this in, insurmountable obstacle that that has the potential of crushing you and you can put it underneath you and it can become the strongest part of the foundation of who you are. Yes. So I stopped looking for that person that I once was. Mm. I stopped looking to try to exhume what was right. lost. Mm -hmm. And instead I decided to build something new. Mm. Um, so through the anthropology, I studied every, and I thought life coaching was a scam. I was like, you know, even like Tony Robbins, like he was the guy I went through like his, his court. I'm like, come on. He just gets out. He says cliches where energy or where focus goes, energy flows. And then a whole bunch of weak people just repeat that. You know, but then when you see the science behind it, I'm like, oh my God, where, where focus goes, energy flows. Like it is scientific, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and I, I was not going to get into that at all. And my professor was like, you have to explore every facet, even ones you don't agree with. And I found that and I'm like, well, whatever. And I remember I was driving my, Sandy was driving and, um, and I started having a panic attack and I did one of Tony Robbins, um, uh, um, exercises. So I pictured panic in my mind, I just let my mind paint a picture. And it, it was just a black background with the word anxiety, almost like horror movie, like script, you know, like, like dripping blood. It was all red. And I put it on the other side of the grand Canyon. And then I just pushed it further away and I made it blurry and then as it got smaller and smaller and smaller, then, then I, I like just imagine in my head hearing a pop and it was gone. And, and then I just kind of did a scan. And I was like, I don't feel anxiety. What the fuck is this? No pill, no, no. So I'm like, okay. So I, I started looking into like all, all of life coaching stuff. I, I joined the uh, Robbins Madonna's training Um specifically to heal myself yeah. not to become a life coach you know even now like people are like oh i, I want to help i have a passion i don't have that passion for helping people <laughs> i like i don't like i don't know i can i feel horrible saying that as a life coach but like my thing is this is like i lived dark i lived in this blinding darkness for so long i want to be the light so I don't want to help people, but I just want to be, live my life as a light so people can find their way out of their own darkness. Yeah. You and know? when you see that, what I kind of picture is like a buoy, right? Like you're in the water and you're going to drown and stuff. And like, if there's just a buoy that you can just hold on to, right? Like that sort of see the light, be the lighthouse, be the buoy so that people can figure out what they need to figure out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know I mean? Cause I think as life coaches, like we're, we're amazing guides, Yeah, but it's them that they, they do the work. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, I even said like, when I first started my business I said like, what I offer people, I, I offer like everything that I offer you is worthless unless you put in the work. And he's like, you can't, this guy that was like trying to like, I, I bought like a 
a course like on how to, and he's like, you can't say that. Like, no. And I'm like, why not? It's true. Like why? And he's well, it doesn't matter if it's true. Like, no, dude, I'm going to be me. I'm not going to become a character because this is not me needing to make money for significance in my life. Like this is like, people are hurting, people are suffering and they don't need to. I get why we are, but we don't need to, you know, um, I can't force it on anybody. You know, um, I could, I, I wish I could go back to my, my Christian roots and, and like, just knock on their doors, you know, until they finally give in and join my church, but can't do it. Right. right. And know? wouldn't it be easy if it was sort of like that more Christian based religion where you're like, no, you do a and B and it's going to equal C every single time. Yeah. It's like, hell no, life is not that simple, right? Healing is not that simple. It's so nuanced and it's so individualized. And there is no prescription for it. That's a crazy thought. I just I just had a a, a phone call with a, an old client yesterday. He he kind of he's like I I could use some help right now. I'm like, got you, man. You know, and he's a Marine vet. And everything I do with veterans is absolutely free. You know, because I've decided that you know the motto like never leave a man behind. That mm-hmm. should not stop when our military contract ends. Mm-hmm. You know, beautiful. and and more people have died on this side of Iraq and Afghanistan than they did in, in the entire 20 year war, you know, and that's, and we're talking about kids, you know, 19, 20, uh, I mean, 25 year olds, you know, seeing that that is the way, how bad does your pain have to be? That, that destroys me. Yeah. And I think that what you're describing is sort of this, view behind the curtain, right? Like you and I talk about the matrix or this or that, but it sounds to me like when you are a part of that, like in America, the military is huge, right? And it's what we salute to and it's our flag. And it's like, so part of our programming of being a good American and a good human and a good, and then you go touch this thing and it's actually dark and dangerous and gross. How do you go back into life believing anything, right? Like I can see where it is such a like throw everything on its head experience. And then of course you don't trust government or family or God, or like, what do you have to believe in when you've peeked behind the curtain and seen an illusion broken? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, that this kind of led me to leaving the church too. I mean, because like, I thought God was my answer. In fact, everybody at church told me that I have depression, anxiety because I have a secret sin against God. And I'm like, well, can he tell me? And they're like, no. And I'm like, all right, so he's my father. I did something innocently, not knowing, but that pissed him off. And if I went to my dad because he was, I'm like, I don't, I did something, but I don't know what I did. He wouldn't be like, figure it out yourself. So he loved me enough to send his son to come and die for me, but he doesn't love me enough to tell me what I'm doing innocently that is pissing him off yeah i'm like that makes no sense you know right um and that got me looking like you said behind that curtain be like there's a whole lot here that doesn't make sense yeah um but yeah the, the coolest thing is so i i did my i did my research i did my thesis um I actually was able to present it to a um, international anthropology conference up in Vancouver. 
and um, my senior thesis advisor was going anyway. So she came, she said, your, your presentation was the first time I've ever seen a standing ovation given at any of these conferences. And she's been an anthropologist for like 60 years, man. I mean, like, love that. It, it was a one person standing ovation, but I got a standing ovation. That is so cool. And, and I just, I just like laid all this stuff out and, and all the research, like I was saying, shows that it, it's, it's an identity change, but when you leave the military, they don't re like, they don't retrain you to have an identity to be back in the civilian world. So that's what I found with the coaching thing was I need to rebuild my identity. That's why I stopped trying to find that person who I was yeah. becoming. And I, and I realized no life doesn't work like that. Things happen to us and whether we want them to or not, they are now a part of us. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our suffering comes from wishing that thing never happened, Yeah, but it did, yep. you know? So I learned to step on it and I'll, and and make it part of my foundation, allowing it, allowing that those parts to integrate. So whether I'm a coward, whether I'm weak, I still struggle with it. But I, but like overall, I'm like it doesn't matter. Yeah. Let's just say I am, or or I was. That now is a part of my foundation going forward. Like I will not be that weak again. Mm. You know, um, where where something that was easy affect me like like that like some of the decisions i made afterwards yeah you know like we're we're more self-sabotaging so i won't be that we i won't make those decisions again you know um forgiving myself yeah you know for for those things i was a 19 year old kid and my world was shattered mm -hmm. you know um when i went into the VA, i didn't know this so after i had covid I always felt my anxiety like down towards like my diaphragm. It was almost like a burning. Um, but after COVID, like I was having like outright panic attacks. Like I was having heart palpitations, chest tightness to the point where I thought I was like, all right, my heart is done. Um, but I went um, EKGs, chest X, or everything came out normal. And, and so they said, this is just um, a panic. So they wanted me to go again, go back on meds because I had gotten myself off all meds. The only medication I used to deal with this was, was cannabis. And, and I'm not saying like, that is a personal choice that I made and everybody's got to, like, I did two years of research prior to that to convince Sandy, cause she was completely against it. Yeah. And it turned out for me to be one of the greatest tools in, in my, in my um, toolbox to deal with this. Um, and when I went back, so my doctor actually didn't want me to go back on meds. She actually, my, my primary care doctor wanted me to start doing mushrooms, mm. which uh, like my primary care doc is freaking awesome. Um, and she wanted me to go to the VA, get into a study. So I, I went to the VA and they're like, yeah, we don't do that, man. Like, no, because they're against all of that. Um, even my doc now hates the fact that I use marijuana. Um, but he provided me with all these studies that it makes you violent and stuff. I provided him with all these studies showing how all those studies, because what they did was like, he gave me a study where they took inner city kids that were arrested for violent crimes. And then they looked, have they ever been arrested for marijuana? And if they were, they said, yep, see, 
And I'm like, dude, what, what's that saying? Like, um, yeah, it's like correlation versus causation. Causation, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's actually yeah. really funny. If you look up on the internet, like fake correlation, it's like, you know, number of shark attacks and people who have blue houses or like they make all these funny graphs that show how ridiculous it is. Oh, I never, that, that is hysterical. Yeah. So I, I gave him all the, I gave, I printed out a stack of research and put on his desk. In fact, in Connecticut, um, I mean, it's legal now, but uh, uh, for to get my medical marijuana card, I had to get a, a, a letter from, from my doctor saying I was being treated for one of the things on there. When I asked him for the letter, he was like, I'll, I'll do it. I'm going to write a letter saying I'm treating for PTSD, but this is a huge mistake. Um, the VA now has a policy where they will not write those letters anymore. Wow. Yeah. Even though they give out when a read the body keeps the score. There was a study done. Um, I forget exactly what the drug is. It might be Prozac, but the DOD spends like something like 75 billion a year on Prozac. And it has been shown to be as good as a placebo. Um, but right, they but still money making. Yeah. And you know what? Like, if they can medicate you to the point where you're just a drone, you're just going through life. You know, one of the saddest things I ever saw was at the VA, um, an older guy, must have been like in the first Gulf War or something. He was walking around to all these cars, putting his hand on different parts of the car, um, putting then putting his thumb, stuff like that. And I just sat there watching him. And then these this other couple came out and he was at their truck and he was doing all this stuff. And so I got out because I, you know, I'm thinking like, this guy is not right. Apparently, I don't know if something's going to happen, you know, and this guy had his wife with them. So I came up and, and I'm like, I've been watching him do this now for, for a little bit. And um, he said, I'm going to go in and get the, the vet because the veterans affairs has, has police, which again, is funny because they're all like these 22 or whatever, however old you got to be like kids that never been in the military, nothing, you know? So they, they came rolling up. I mean, they had their hands on their guns and stuff. And I'm like, fucking relax. The right. dude's not being violent, nothing. And um, so I went up to the guy and I was like, you okay, man? He's like, ah, I can't remember where my car is. I'm like, well, what are you doing with your hand? And he goes, well, you put your hand on it and it'll recognize me and open. So I'm just, he was going to every car in the lot. Seeing right, waiting until he heard the click. Yeah. And I, and I said, and then the police rolled up and I was like, well, why don't we, why don't we head back inside and, and they, they'll, they'll be able to help you like in there, figure out where your car is. Um, and then when the police got there and this dude must be in his sixties, he grabbed my hand, like a little kid scared. Aww. And I had to get into the back of the police car with him because he would not let go of me. Aww. And they drove around in the emergency room. We went in and um, once, once, and I was like, all right, these doctors, they're going to take care of you, man. They, they got you. Don't worry about it. You're okay. He, he had, but he was just so over-medicated. Yeah. You know, and that is a common story. Like there was one, when I was doing all my research, a Navy SEAL almost died. He, after all his comments, so he became a trainer and he almost died just from, all the medications interacting with each other that he was taking. Um, and now he does like uh, 
what is it kundalini yoga like he only wears mm -hmm. white and he you know and off all medications everything you know and i'm thinking like all right so there's there's got to be that way yeah. you know and when i got into coaching chloe madonis who is one of the world-renowned marriage and family counselor um she said the problem with therapy all right so we have like we have the need to control our environment, the need to get love, the need to give love, and and we need to um, repent and and forget. And those are like four points we're always kind of cycling through. And she said therapy stops at getting love, hmm. but coaching says you find the healing and the fulfillment in giving love, hmm. because whenever you're giving of like something, you you still feel that emotion, you yeah. know. You can't dictate when you're going to get loved or care or whatever, but you can dictate when you give it. And when you give it, you're going to feel it. Yes. yes. So I'm like, okay. So I started going through everything to try to figure out what my mind does, why it does it, why, why it works. And, and I'm not talking like the squishy part. Like I don't hippocampus, yep. it's gross. But I'm taught, you know, like negativity was a survival mechanism that for 2 million years that we used, you know, so our brains, um, like neuroscientists, like says they, they, our brains are like Velcro for the negative things in life and like Teflon for the good. It slides right off and it's so easy to forget, you know, and then when we focus on that, that's where our energy goes. You know, so we start seeing it everywhere because what we focus on, we're telling our brain, this is important. So I started focusing on, first thing was gratitude. And I was even doing this last night and I was like, it's so dumb, but it works so good. Like I was, so I'm going through like um, at night because Sandy's like up at like four in the morning and stuff. And I, that's just, that's against my religion. So I don't, I don't believe it four in the morning. I don't believe in that at all. So I'll go into the garage and I'll smoke and watch a little TV. And that's how I end my night. And, um, and I'm, and I'm going through all the Marvel movies and it's kind of a cheesy show, but kind of good called the iron fist. And the actress, there's this actress that's in it that is now on the star Wars show, Oshaka. And I'm like, dude, I, I remember seeing her like doing parts like on daredevil. And then she's got like a, like a big part in iron. And now she's like the lead. And so I was, I was just grateful for the success that she was having, like mm -hmm. wishing her like well and grateful for all the entertainment that she's brought me. And it just fills me with gratitude. And that is the, that is the, the miracle of cannabis. You know, yeah. when we use it to try to stop something, it's not going to work, you know, especially anxiety because yeah. one of the side effects is becoming anxious, right. you know, but, um, and that's exactly what you were saying earlier, right? Where your thoughts go, energy flows, right? If you use weed and then you put your thoughts and your energy flows that way and you open a bigger path for that, then it can become. Yeah. And I even, I even know like a client that I worked with, um, she, she would smoke and I, I found out like, you can't, you can't smoke. Like yeah. it made her, her paranoia was so deep because right. her wounds were so deep that it just, it made that paranoia amplify, yep. you know? Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's, a, and just like any, any medicine out there, it's, it's not for everybody, 
you know, but um, the- Yeah, I would say it's not for every person and not for every season of life, right? That's why it's yes. new Yeah, even now, I just, I just saw today, like Snoop Dogg has announced that he's given off weed, yeah. you know, and he's older. Willie Nelson gave it up. I think Post yeah. Malone gave it up, you know? Yeah, it, it's, you use it for a time, but like you get to this point where you're like, you know what? Now, none of them have health issues is, is that we know of, right. you know, um, but it's just, you get to this point where you're like, you know what? Okay, that's enough. Right. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to be connected to your inner self or your higher self or whatever word you have for that so that you can navigate when it's time to pivot, when it's time to close a chapter, open a chapter, move yes. forward, pull back. Right. And I just, I love this conversation so much. And I know that we're at time here, but I think maybe we should do a part two because I wrote down a bunch of notes of things that you sort of brought up in me and things I more things I wanted to ask you. So let's, let's do a part two and kind of just continue this conversation in the next recording. I, I love it. Cause yeah. Um, Cause I think, I think beyond like that rite of passage model, you know, there, it gets to a point where everybody becomes involved because everybody, civilian military doesn't matter. Our, our identity is built, you know, yes. um, but we do have a choice to create our own yes. um, and, and do it. And that's, that's what I did. So the, the last thing I'll say, and I'll talk more about this, like next time too, is when I first went in, they did an evaluation, a PTSD test on me. And remember, everybody was telling me, nope, you don't have it. I scored a set, like 80 is the worst. I scored a 74, right? So I had severe PTSD and it's like recorded, like boom. Right. Um, when I went back after I had COVID like a couple of years ago, they did another evaluation on me. I scored 36 points lower with no medication, no therapy, nothing, just practicing living this way of life. Yes. And I think that would be really fun to dig in more in the next episode. My language for it is I'm like, I am a little scientist in my life. And so yes. I'm like, this is the experiment. I'm going to meditate every day for 30 days and see how I feel and record it. And then I'm going to smoke weed and see how I feel. And then I'm going to go to work. Like anything that I do, it's my science lab, right? I am my own science lab and my life is my science lab. And that's kind of how I think how coaches work with clients is you're like, okay, do this homework assignment, do this. So digging into more of like, how do you do that? How does that shape your identity? And I think also, you know, we talked a little bit about addiction, but I'd love to dig in more into that because it's not a shameful thing, nope. right? It's an innocent thing that happens to a lot of people. And so, yeah, this just opened up so many great things. So thank you. And thank you so much for sharing your story. Really beautiful story. Thank and you. one thing I'll say before we leave is give your wife a huge high five because what a warrior that woman is. Like that might even be fun. I'd love to hear her side of it and what it felt like to show up as this warrior for your husband. Yeah, I would love to hear that that part of it too because there's a beautiful story there of oh, love yeah. and frustration and you know, everything else that has to come from that. Yeah. And there, there was many years that she was fighting me. Yeah. 
you know, and that led to our divorce and stuff. And then after three years, we got remarried and now we just celebrated 28 years together. And yeah, yeah so she, cool. she is, she's amazing. And, and that's, that's such a good point because like PTSD radiates out beyond the person, Yep. you know, um, it's going to affect spouses. It's going to affect children. Yep. Um, you know, so yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, happy veterans day late. Cause we recorded. I appreciate it. And thanks uh, so much for your story. I loved it. Oh, uh, my play. Yeah, this was fun. I feel bad talking so much, but. Um, oh, it's so good. Yeah. All right, stories are so it. rich and stories help us learn and grow. And so I think yes. that's a wonderful thing about a podcast. And I think the vision that you and I have about hearing people's stories that you don't even have to be intentionally teaching anything. It is you yourself being vulnerable and sharing openly that yes. transforms others. That that's the thing. Like, I, like I, I think part of like our society and stuff, it like it diminishes who we are, yes. and then people tell their stories, and I'm like, oh, you are massive, you yes. know. And imagine if everybody started having like that mentality that I am so much bigger than I get have learned to give myself credit for. Like, what yeah. can we do? Absolutely, totally, yeah. Thank you for listening to the Chasing Thoughts podcast. Please support us by liking, subscribing, or leaving a review or comment. We would really appreciate it. If you'd like to be a guest, we would love to explore life and what it means to be human with you. Please email us at chasingthoughtspodcast at gmail.com.